Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me in the studio today we have Spike's editor Tom Slater and joining us down the line from Luton we have Spike columnist Rakib Essan. Coming up on the show today we'll be talking about the Wakefield Quran controversy, the new Northern Ireland Brexit deal and the lockdown files. So Last week, a schoolboy was suspended and was sent death threats for allegedly desecrating the Quran. This incident has involved um, the local Muslim community. The police have even got involved. And strangely, the police, rather than siding with the boy who's been given death threats, have actually seemed to be siding with the mob. They've logged his um, scuffing of the Quran as a hate incident. Ricky, do you want to tell us a little bit about the background to this story? Well, ultimately, when it comes to this story, I find it to be a failure of governance. Uh, apparently, uh, we, we have a situation where uh, there's some kind of dare and someone lost uh, a game of Call of Duty and brought in uh, the Quran to school. And during this uh, particular day at the school, uh, this... Uh, Quran uh, suffered damage. Uh, There's there, there uh, reports of smudging, um, etc. And what unfolded from that was what I'd consider to be um, an appalling state of affairs. Uh, the, the boy involved is is said to be autistic. Uh, th- There's some kind of extrajudicial hearing which involved um, local councillors, uh, religious fi- figures, and chief inspector. Uh, and if truth be told, uh, there are people who are saying that you know, religious tolerance is a fundamental British value. I would also remind them that we do live in a liberal democracy where there are no blasphemy laws. Mm. Now, this isn't about defending faith, in my opinion, or protecting uh, religious beliefs. In my view, this is a kind of Islamist-style regulation of the public sphere, which has no democratic consent. Tom, I mean, this is a kind of de facto blasphemy law, even if we don't officially have those laws on the books. And that's what I think is so shameful about it, really. I mean, as you've already gestured to, this wasn't a case of some sort of incident happening and then again protesters showing up outside the school after a lot of rumours swirling around. This was essentially from the moment this happened, and we should remember this is a they, it wasn't even being burnt or ripped mm. up or spat on or whatever, although there are a lot of rumours circulating to that effect. They brought it in. They reportedly read aloud from it, um, and one of them dropped it on the floor. It was knocked out of their hands, and they brought it back inside the school. So we're talking about scuffing a Quran as now a potentially very serious offence in a in a school in, in, in Yorkshire. But f- almost immediately, um, first of all, you had these four students have been suspended. Yeah. Um, and as you say, the police have got involved. It's been logged as a non-crime hate incident. You have the head teacher of the school who is saying that lessons have to be learned. Um, it all culminated in this um, meeting at the local mosque, clips of which have kind of been doing the rounds on social media, in which the mother of the autistic boy who brought the Quran into school is essentially there begging for her own son's safety. Mm. She says explicitly that whilst he has received death threats and regrettably we've had to tell the police about that, I've said that I don't want any that to go any further because as long as he isn't harmed, this is an, an obscene situation to be in. It does make you wonder what century it is that we're supposed to be living in. And the thing is, it's in in, in my view, whilst of course there are this kind of you know this sort of 
religious intolerance, this religious bigotry is something that we should take very seriously and tackle. But I almost think the primary thing we need to work out is how that kind of institutional cowardice, yeah. liberal cowardice, um, the fact that when it came to the police, the head teachers as well, they'd internalised this sort of prohibition on blasphemy. They almost didn't need to be told mm. there were going to be consequences. And given the fact this is only a couple of years after Batley, given the given the fact that, you know, Salman Rushdie is only just, <laughs> again, sort of, you know, returned to the public sphere, we've got to do something about the fact that in Western countries, um, in Britain, in France, in America, and so on, you have people meeting out restrictions on blasphemy. Sometimes they might use threats. Sometimes they might use strange processes like this. Sometimes they might even use violence. And we really need to take that seriously because I think it's by giving into it or ignoring it that it only festers and becomes even more poisonous and powerful. Yeah, that's that's right. And um, Rakeeb, I wanted to just, uh, Tom alluded to some of the sort of previous cases there, you know, Batley, Salman Rushdie. There's also Samuel Paty in, in France. I mean, this isn't a one-off where we have, you know, religious hardliners essentially calling the shots in what should be a, re- a in a, a liberal democratic society. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I personally find the mockery of religious prophets and... Um, the desecration of religious scriptures grotesque. Uh, that won't come as any surprise to either of you. I'm a social conservative from Luton at the end of the day. But the point is, is that I ultimately live in a liberal democracy where there are no blasphemy laws. And I think that's where respect for the rule of law has to be the fundamental British value. Uh, and I do feel that you do have uh, religious hardliners who are increasingly looking to call the shots in their local areas. Uh, and in my view, this calling of the shots, it has no democratic consent whatsoever. I think that we really suffer from a lack of uh, national leadership when it comes to these kind of issues, uh, it really do. Uh, one would think that the, the a conservative government would be willing to make some kind of robust intervention uh, because I felt that the, 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 the event that... Tom was referring to, it did appear very much almost like a kind of extrajudicial hearing in in a sense. And I think when you have those emerging parallel codes, and I'd go as far as saying counter societies, uh, where you see that sort of collective respect for the rule of law is being broken down, a diverse society such as ours um, is, is in a very vulnerable state when that sort of thing unfolds. And okay, just quickly, I mean, a lot of people will say, well, those people, those sort of community leaders, they're, they're representing uh, Muslims, they're representing the Muslim faith. What do you make of that kind of argument? Surely they don't represent ordinary British Muslims. Well, uh, I, think, I think many of the figures involved are very much self, self-appointed mm. um, uh, community leaders. Many of the associations um, which have... Uh, spoken about Wakefield uh, Muslim associations. Uh, I do question how representative they are of the broader Muslim population, which people often forget is incredibly diverse uh, when it comes to their social values and ideological leanings as well. Uh, so I think I think what Wakefield really shows is that we have a situation where people talk a great deal about. British values, religious tolerance, and and I think I do think that mutual tolerance is an, is an important part of living in a diverse society. But I think the most important value here is understanding the laws of the land, 
And the reality is we don't live in a country which has blasphemy laws. Now, of course, if people are very upset about that, they have the option that they can set up and establish a political party um, and contest elections on an anti-blasphemy platform. Or indeed, they also have the option of moving to a country which lives under Sharia-inspired governance. But I suspect that many of those individuals who are speaking very robustly on this matter, uh, from a theological perspective, won't be leaving Britain anytime soon. And, and Tom, what do you what do you make of the way this quite you know conservative, hardline, theocratic, mm. almost Islamist um, outlook seems to become almost synonymous, weirdly, with the liberal left? Why do they not speak out against that? Well, I think it's, it's a whole mix of things. I mean, one of which is that I think whilst we do want to live in a religiously tolerant society and a tolerant society more broadly, people have confused tolerance with tiptoeing, people have confused tolerance with non-judgmentalism, and they do it in particular with minority communities because mm. there is a sense, you could call it an overcorrection, I think it's actually incredibly patronising, an idea that you effectively have to ring-fence certain groups from offence. And I, th I think Muslims are, are kind of, in many respects, in people's heads, put very high up the pile there. You also have all of the kind of the narrative around Islamophobia, yeah, which has effectively created a situation, doesn't matter how we got here, it's effectively created a situation in which criticising conservative religious hardliners is a form of racism, mm. not upholding their own personal religious strictures and is, is a form of racism, even accidentally doing things which might offend against their particular interpretation of a faith is a form of racism. This is a ludicrous situation that we found mm. ourselves in particularly given the fact that when it comes to freedom of speech, historically, it's been fought for and achieved by people who have on occasion not been particularly sensitive, particularly when it comes to religion. Yeah. I mean, even our more the kind of more recent, cherished, liberal free speech case studies that people like to trot out in relation to the life of Brian or Piss Christ or whatever it might mm. be, these tell us that there's a certain point in which um, sometimes people rattle people's deepest held convictions, and that's where often... We find that there are lines, we find that there are restrictions creeping in. It's just it's such a strange situation in which, in the name of tolerance, we're actually essentially fueling an incredibly powerful and toxic intolerance amongst a, a small section of the Muslim population and also basically treating them as the authentic voice mm. of all Muslims. And I think that's one thing that really needs to be stressed is when we're talking about blasphemy laws de facto or actually inked in law... These are huge problems, not just for you know, not just for members of the white British majority who, for some reason, want to have a pop at the Prophet Muhammad or Islam. It's a big problem for religious minorities. Yeah, it's a big problem for minorities within Islam itself. I mean, when people say or oh, something like Samuel Patti, that couldn't happen here. I always say to them, Do you know who Assad Shah is? Who was the Ahmadi Muslim who was stabbed to death? He was a Glasgow shopkeeper stabbed to death because he was deemed to be blasphemous in statements that he'd made online. These cases do exist, so I think when you when you oppose blasphemy laws, you're not, you know you're, you're also sticking up for the right of, of various minorities in society. Yeah, I mean you know one faith blasphemes against the other quite naturally, one sect blasphemes against the other. But again, it's that that liberal cowardice, that patronisation, particularly of the Muslim population. It's all contributed to a kind of toxic mix in which we've effectively empowered some incredibly intolerant, hardline people, and it's really about time that we stopped doing that because it only gets worse the more you cave into it, I think. 
So this week, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen uh, unveiled the Windsor Framework. This is the updated version of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the post-Brexit deal that keeps Northern Ireland partially in the EU single market. Tom, there's been a lot of sort of celebrations around this this deal, um, some of it a little bit ghastly, mm. uh, let's be honest. Rishi Sunak claims it assuages everyone's concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol, mm-hmm. that it restores sovereignty to the United Kingdom, that it restores Northern Ireland's place in the Union. Is that really true? No. And in a sense, if you read even their own kind of puff document, which just roughly sets out what it is that they feel that they've achieved, they they essentially admit to that. I mean, mm. you will hear things like they haven't got rid of the border in the Irish Sea, mm. obviously, which effectively represents Northern Ireland being hived off from the rest of the United Kingdom, kept in single market for goods and so on. They've got rid of the feeling of it being. <laughs> essentially, they've cut the bureaucracy, they've cut yeah. the checks, they've ushered in these green lanes and red lanes. They've reduced the number of EU regulations that apply to Northern Ireland, but it's still there. It's still ultimately under the jurisdiction of the European Courts of Justice, which is made crystal clear if you read either the UK or the EU side of this. I understand that there is obviously sensitivity around this issue. I think there's a lot of people in politics, even on the Brexit side, who are probably maybe slightly exhausted. There's a palpable sense that even amongst people who might be quite previously been quite principled Brexiteers, that because of how things have been handled over the course of the past seven years, because of the mistakes that have been made, particularly on the Northern Ireland question, giving into the EU's interpretation of what needed to happen effectively, that this is the best that we can do. Mm. But they shouldn't get away with pretending that it is something that it's not, which is that it's a solving of this particular problem, that it um, does not effectively hive off Northern Ireland And beneath the spin, that is pretty crystal clear. This is a huge problem from the perspective of sovereignty. And it ushers in effectively a kind of like neo-colonial arrangement where the EU is, you know, Great Britain leaves and then a part of UK territory is almost kept as a a consequence of this. It's something which really needs to be taken up. Um, And I think at the very least, people who are supporting this particular deal should be honest about what it is that it represents because it's not necessarily matching up to a lot of the kind of lofty rhetoric and um, public emoting, which is um, brought about amongst a lot of people, particularly in the Tory party at this point. Yeah, Rakeem, I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, it deals with a lot of people's practical concerns, but the actual principles, you know, which really what matter to a lot of people who support Brexit are not actually dealt with. No, I I think that's a perfectly fair point. Uh, but it's also interesting to see that the likes of Brexit hard man Steve Baker really <laughs> cut a go, you know, expressing... Self-declared hard man, we should say. <laughs> I didn't realise, yeah, he very gave that nickname to himself. <laughs> expressing some very, uh, very strong support for the Windsor framework. Uh, but but I, I, I still think that the Prime Minister, if he wants to get this Windsor framework over the line and cultivate broad-based support... Uh, especially within Northern Ireland, I think that he still has a lot of work to do. Uh, from what I hear, the, the DUP are not very fond of this uh, new Windsor framework at all. Uh, so in short, the, the, the Prime Minister is, is obviously very keen to move forwards uh, with this new arrangement. He says that this is a wonderful arrangement for uh, Northern Ireland in that it has privileged, uh, privileged access to both uh, the European Union uh, single market, and also the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, but then that would that that leaves open the door uh, for Labour to say, well, why don't just we have this for the whole of the UK? 
Um, and, and I think that there'll be many people, especially in Remain Voting Scotland and Remain Voting London, who might say, well, well, well we fancy a bit of that as well. So <laughs> you have to be careful what you wish for. The Prime Minister is very supportive of his own Windsor framework, mm. but it might well just open a huge can of worms. He already has, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Social yeah. media. Has, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I suppose that there is the point that this is a very unique mm. <laughs> access to the single market. Mm. You know, it's not free, freedom of movement. It's mm. um, There's all these kind of different things. But I think you're completely right as far as the more he lays on this kind of sales pitch, which this is the greatest deal of all time, that's going to be absolutely <laughs> wonderful, the more it has kind of opened the door for those people to try and say, well... Then why, you know, if yeah, it's so but, wonderful, why can't we all have it? Why can't we have nice things as well? Which is already what you're seeing. You're talking about Northern Ireland, like it's sort of UK Hong Kong or something. <laughs> <laughs> how how traders will get their goods into into China or whatever. Let's watch that clip that you referred to of Steve Baker, Rakeeb. Seven years of this cost me my mental health. The beard, the jewellery, is about me, my recovery. In November 21, I had a major mental health crisis, anxiety and depression. I couldn't go on. People couldn't tell. I made a big keynote speech in the afternoon. But make no mistake, holding these tigers by the tail, Brexit, Covid recovery group, net zero scrutiny group, the tax stuff we did with Conservative Way Forward, took its toll. We're all only human. And the way I've led rebellions, no one should have to do. And this is an important moment for me personally. Why has he made it so personal? It's about his mental health. Is that that why you voted for Brexit or, you know... Yeah, you wavered about Brexit because you're worried about poor Steve. Well, this is it. I mean, he's got a lot of plaudits because for talking about his issues and so on. And you know, I'm sure it was a very rough time for him. I'm very sorry to hear that. But there was an element of it which seemed mm. to be making it all about him, making it all about you. And I think that's part of the problem with Brexit is the fact that because it has become for the Tory party a psychodrama, yeah, a, a, a matter of. Uh, something that's become quite personal for them, either because of how painful the process has been getting this over the line, the internal battles, the abuse they might get from either side on social media, whatever. But the the problem is is that Brexit is not about them. Mm. And it's not about that. It was about a vote for democracy and sovereignty. And it seems like what we've kind of ended up with is a, particularly in the form of sort of Rishi Sunak, is a a kind of post-Brexit settlement drained of any of that sort of populist energy whatsoever. Yeah. Kind of summed up in this in this deal, which is superficially it's something you can sell, but in terms of the principles of the matter, it's completely lacking. And it does feel like we've got to a situation now, just more broadly at least, where the establishment has found a form of Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> or has found a kind of form of post-Brexit governance, if you like, in the form of a very technocratic Rishi Sunak, that they can get along with, that they can d- digest. They'd really prefer Keir Starmer probably at this point, but still it's, it's something that doesn't upset the horses so much. There's a kind of sense that that period in which the lunatics ran the asylums, they would say, that you had leaders like Johnson who were were trying in a slightly often naff fashion to try and represent what people wanted, is kind of done and now we're back to sharp-suited politics as as usual. So in all sorts of different ways, I think there's a kind of sense that it's become folded into process and also kind of stripped of any of the things that that made it interesting and and positive beyond the technical arrangements for Northern Ireland, however they were to be sorted out. Yeah, all the the commentaries about adults back in the room, um, you know, sensible compromise rather than um, principled brinkmanship, that Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, Rakeem, just on the sort of broader question of Brexit, um, you know, whether whether Brexit is done, quote unquote, is often um, what people ask themselves. Where we're at now, do you really see this kind of version of post-Brexit government 
pleasing the people who voted for Brexit? I mean, particularly in those kind of red wall areas. No, absolutely not. I don't think that the trust government was particularly pleasing for those red wall areas because those are those exact areas where the Conservatives fell some way behind uh, during that very brief 45-day spell where she was Prime Minister. Uh, I, I think that more generally, I've said this on um, some of our previous episodes, I think that there was a golden opportunity to embed and consolidate this cross-class, multi-ethnic, pro-Brexit coalition. Uh, but I think that I think that has been well and truly squandered. And I think that's largely because there's elements of the Conservative Party, uh, they're very reluctant to give those working-class communities th- th- their time and energy. Mm. I-, I think that's the truth of it. I think that it, when it comes to understanding their economic and cultural concerns you still have that sort of pro-market, socially liberal dimension of the Conservative Party, which is a world away from those anxieties and concerns. So that working-class conservatism, or working-class Toryism, you could say, um, which uh, could have been cultivated in this uh, uh, post-Brexit era, so far, that, that, that the project hasn't gone according to plan. And in my view, the project is pretty much dead because I do think that many of those pro-Brexit communities now, uh, because the Brexit uh, the Brexit realignment, uh, that's, that's not been uh, embedded really in any way, shape or form. You'll see many of those communities, I feel, traditionally Labour voting, uh, returning back to their natural party in the next general election. Or not voting at all. Yeah. No, I think that could definitely Or perhaps not voting at all indeed. That could definitely happen. Not not to draw us back onto Northern Ireland stuff, but I think it is worth stressing as well, because there is this sense at the moment that anyone who would take a principal position on what this this new deal is and represents, who therefore have deep concerns about what it means for sovereignty and so on. There's this dismissal as dead cranks and mm. purists. Hardliners. Hardliners, headbangers, pick your cliche. Yeah. But I think it is important remembering how significant and how much of an aberration really this setup is. I mean, during that press conference, you had Rishi Sunak saying, and now I can announce that Northern Ireland can have the same medicines as GB, <laughs> and in that way that he does. And it's yeah. just, it was a remarkable admission, really, of the, of the fact that the UK government and his predecessors, really, but still, had agreed to a situation which no other sovereign nation would surely agree to. Mm. And it was also not, as many people would like to present it, as the inevitable consequence of Brexit, mm. Um, that the border would always bedevil the process. It raises questions and issues that need to be overcome, but it was never beyond the wit of man. It was the inevitable consequence of the attempt to frustrate Brexit, particularly from the EU side, where they very explicitly tried to weaponise the border issue as a means to try and bring the UK to heel, to extract concessions. And also a very weak response from the Tory government, particularly Theresa May, who effectively accepted the logic of this proposal. You had to settle mm. the border before you settle the trade deal. Um, the backstop being the kind of outgrowth of, of all of this. And therefore, you had a situation where Boris Johnson and David Frost um, have now kind of admitted, certainly David Frost has, that they had to sign up to a deal that they knew was terrible, but it was the best they could possibly get in any sort of form to get Brexit over the line. So that is worth noting. That being said, it is also worth remembering that this is... a Beyond all of this, this, we should remember what this vote was all about in the first place. It was about reshaping politics. It was about shaking things up. It was about sovereignty. It was also about democracy. And I think going forward, given it has been sucked into this kind of deadening, often technocratic debate, we should remember where it, where it comes from, how positive that moment was, um, and how we should try our best to sort of 
recover it whilst recognizing that the pretenders, the people who attempted to kind of harness it and shape it for some time in the form of the Tory party have failed miserably mm. in that particular quest of theirs. Finally, let's move on to talk about the lockdown files. So the Telegraph have uh, been given access to 100,000 WhatsApp messages um, by Matt Hancock um, or in between Matt Hancock and various other ministers and, and Whitehall figures. The first tranche of them talk about uh, Hancock's handling of the care home scandal. Now, Rakeem, these are pretty damning, aren't they? They're very damning. Uh, I think that Matt, Matt Hancock's uh, efforts to uh, be a relatable figure for the British public, especially <laughs> after going on I'm a Celebrity, I think they've been shot down in flames uh, <laughs> very quickly. Uh, I, I think I think the, the, these findings could be very, very damning indeed. Uh, it seems to be the suggestion that um, Matt Hancock went against uh, expert advice and said that he, he was against uh, the testing, uh, COVID testing for those who are en- who are entering care homes uh, mm. from the community. Uh, I just have no idea why he would even do that. It just it sounds absolutely uh, absurd that that he would be uh, against that. Uh, I think there's very few people who feel that. Uh, he, he, you know, in terms of his personal part, that his pandemic-related management uh, was good. I think that his decision-making um, was very poor. Um, some of his decision-making in a personal capacity was also very poor, uh, and he paid the price for that. But it's I think the famous that, affair you're referring to with uh, well, and I think I, I think that overall that the, 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 these findings will may well even find their way in the COVID-19 inquiry mm. as well, the independent uh, inquiry. Uh, and I think more generally, there needs to be a very serious discussion as well about um, the, the, the general regulation of uh, private care homes. I think there was a grand failure uh, of an industrial scale, especially when it came to the shortage of uh, important uh, protective uh, equipment. Uh, we saw that the, the amount of deaths in care homes was a, it was a magnificent scale. Um, so Matt Hong, Hancock may well have played a part in that, but I think we also have to look at how we regulate our private care homes. And, and there's many people who pay astronomical fees for their loved ones to be um, homed in these, uh, to, to, to live in these care homes. Where were all those resources and why were they so, sh- uh, why were there such shortages when it came to uh, important forms of equipment? I think these questions really need to be asked. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Tom, I mean, the testing kind of scandal is it, it's worth you know almost reiterating isn't it because it started off the pandemic policy the department of health policy was let's kick people out of hospital put them into care homes they don't need a test and even if they test positive we will put them into a care home mm-hmm. then hancock changed it to let's just test people who come from hospital but anyone else coming in and out doesn't need a test mm-hmm. supposedly defying the uh edicts of defying Chris Whitty mm. or yeah. advice I should say it's worth saying that because this story by the time people see this podcast it probably developed a fair bit more there's new revelations to come out Hank yeah. trying to knock it down his claim is that his WhatsApp message or exchange in which he seemed to confirm that yes he basically said yeah we'll test people coming from hospitals now but we're not going to do it from the community was lack context there was mm-hmm. another bit of the message saying that he'd had a meeting and they realised it wasn't feasible or whatever but I not, I'm not going to take his word for it necessarily. Yeah. And it's also the fact that, as you say, it was just such a horrendous failure that took place there, despite the fact that it seemed surely to be common sense to anyone that this was easily the most kind of 
vulnerable population, the most concentrated vulnerable population you yeah. can talk about. And yet in the rush to clear the clear the hospitals because of all of the concerns about them being flooded with patients, then you've you've effectively seeded these outbreaks. Now I know there's some debate over whether it was actually the community transition, it was via the carers coming in that actually seeded those yeah. outbreaks rather than people leaving hospital. Those debates will rage for some time. But even so, kind of, you know, there was no even though people like Carl Hennigan were putting forward ideas of really throwing rings of protection around care homes, you know, paying people to stay there for weeks on end. Yeah. There was just no thinking put into this. And there was no, whereas the, during the course of the pandemic, a lot of mistakes were made. And obviously the stripping of our civil liberties is yeah. easily the highest among them. But at the same time, you know, there could have been a mobilization of state resources towards protecting the people who really needed protecting. If all of that energy that went mm. into scaring people, everyone stiff yeah. to stay in their homes, to not walk the dog, otherwise you'd be menaced by drones and the police. All of that stuff that was just focused where it needed to be, you do wonder if we'd have had a different outcome, not least because of the fact that whilst we're still waiting for our COVID inquiry to kick into gear, yeah. Sweden's already had it, and as we know, in, the, in what seems like the final analysis, it's come out pretty well by yeah. taking a much more liberal, focused approach. So it's a it's a tragedy, really, but it's also all mixed up with with Matt Hancock's uh, semi comic pursuit of fame and attainment, which seems to be part of the story here as well in terms of his, his testing target and how that yeah. seemed to at least at some points, shall we say, take more prominence, at least in his thinking, than maybe it should have in terms of doing. Yeah, he he wanted to hit a hundred thousand tests per day. I think it was by the end of April, and and he said explicitly that you know. Um, in one of his texts, yes, it's fine to send some tests to care homes as long as it doesn't interfere with my with my target. Mm -hmm. Because you know, potentially you could have those tests lying around and not being used on the on the day that would make him look good. I mean, he's kind of a bit of a risible figure, I guess. Um, Rakeem, I mean, probably people didn't think much of Matt Hancock um, before this, but what what are they going to think now? You know, it can't get can it get worse for him? Oh, it can. Oh, it, it 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 definitely can, and I think that these revelations could be especially damaging. And we have to see if there'll be any 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 further revelations um, as well. I, I I think that more generally, when it comes to the and I I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we have to make the point that there were many members of government who were collectively involved in some very poor decision making over the course of the pandemic, not just uh, Matt Hancock. Uh, but, but I, I do think for him personally, uh, that he he was trying to repair his reputation, and I think in some ways his uh, his fairly impressive performance on I'm a Celebrity, he was making some headway. Uh, but now I think he's very much back to square one, and and I do think it may well get worse for the man. Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.